is a joy and delight to look out over the audience and see so many visitors with us. We're glad you're here. We want you to come back and to be with us again. For those of you who are from out of town, we're glad you're able to come in and visit with your family today. For those of you who are looking for a place to worship and serve God, we'd love for you to be able to work with us as we attempt to try to serve the God of heaven. This morning, I would like to begin by pointing out that many times the church has been misunderstood on various subjects. Several months ago, I was listening to a man who was describing various religious groups as I was preparing for our Wednesday night class. And as he began to characterize various churches, he began to speak about the Lord's Church And some of the things that he discussed was that these are the folks that believe in dunking people. And that was his term. And the Bible does teach that we are to be baptized. And baptism is an immersion. That's what the word itself means. And so, yes, we believe it, but not as it was characterized. We don't just put people under the water for no reason. There's a purpose behind it. It is to try to immerse them in accordance with the teachings of the Lord for the remission of their sins. And then we were described as people who don't like music. And nothing could be further from the truth. I have found that many of our brethren love music. What is meant by that, though, is that we do not use mechanical instruments. We do that because we respect God and want to give Him what he has asked for rather than what pleases us. But the third point that was brought up, he said these are the folks who don't believe the Old Testament. And just like with regards to the other two, there has been some mischaracterization and some misunderstanding with regards to what the Lord teaches. And so this morning what I would like to do is to point out that while we are not bound in the sense of that is our authority, we are believers in the Old Testament. Notice, for instance, with me a few verses of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If I correctly divide something is I place the markers of distinction where they belong. And as you read the Bible, you recognize that not everything belongs at the same period of time. For instance, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, Paul is describing the Old Testament. And he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He's describing there what Jesus did to the Old Testament law. He nailed it to the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, 
Paul will describe the passing of the Old Testament law in which he says the ministry of death written and engraved on stones. That which was written and engraved on stones, folks, was the Ten Commandments. If you will notice carefully here, he describes it as having glory. But he says that which is now the New Testament has more glory. And if you will notice with verses 10 and 11, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory excels. For if what was passing away is glorious, what remains is more glorious. He's saying the New Testament is more glorious than the old, and he's saying the old was passing away. But you know, sometimes I like things to just be said very simple. Just to put it in so many words. The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.9 says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. I think that's very evident in Scripture. But I would like to point out that those people who say they do believe in the Old Testament and say that it is binding today that we live under those laws, that they themselves do not keep it. You know, that was one of the points that Paul made with Peter in the book of Galatians. Let me make that point today. We do not see people today continuing to keep the Old Testament sacrificial system where on the Day of Atonement they would take a lamb or a bullock or they would take various grain offerings and various drink offerings and take them to Jerusalem and present them to the priest who would then carry them and burn them on the altar. They don't do that. Or, for instance, the Old Testament dietary laws. Many of us today enjoy eating ham or bacon or sausage. You couldn't if you were following the Old Testament law. Nor could you eat catfish. You see, those Old Testament dietary laws, people don't keep those as well. What about the Old Testament religious festivals, feast days? The Jewish people this past Friday began the celebration of an annual feast that they participate in called the Feast of Passover. I haven't seen too many people taking a lamb, killing that lamb, taking their whole family into the home and making sure there's no yeast in the home or no leaven. You see, we don't keep those festival days. So we're not under that Old Testament law. Well, then what value does the Old Testament have? I don't want people to think that I don't believe the Old Testament law because I certainly do. I'd suggest to you there's four great values of the Old Testament. And I'm going to have to move very quickly this morning to be able to cover all four of these. The first one is foundation. The second one is preparation. The third one is illustration, and the fourth one is going to be application. Notice with me for just a few moments. The Old Testament provides for us the foundational questions of life, the answers for them. For instance, where did this world begin? When did it begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. I learned that from the Old Testament. What about the origin of man? 
Where did I come from? Am I a distant cousin to a monkey? No, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. God made man, specifically made man, and he gave him a place of honor, a place of dominion, if you will. It tells me about the origin of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, going through verse 7, we learn what the devil did in approaching Adam and Eve. We learn that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And verses 6 and 7 says, Eve ate, she gave to Adam, and he ate. Sin entered the world then. I learned where wrong came from. Wrong is disobeying God. The Old Testament also furnishes for us a foundation of understanding who Jesus really is. His divinity. In John 5 and verse 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. You go back and you look, and you will find the foundation of His divinity there. Or Luke chapter 24, verse 27, And beginning from Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in the Scriptures all the things concerning Himself. If I want to know Jesus, who He really is, I've got to have that Old Testament as a foundation. How much of the New Testament would one be able to understand without the foundation that you get in that Old Testament? For instance, I want to pull out one verse, and I want you to just look at it and ask yourself, or really two verses, could I even understand these two verses did I not have the Old Testament? He's talking about the children of Israel and their rejection of the gospel. And he says, who are Israelites? What if I didn't have the Old Testament? How would I know who they are? To whom pertain the adoption? How would I understand how they were related, whoever these people are, to the adoption which is becoming a child of God? The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. All those things would be a mystery if I did not have the Old Testament. Of whom the fa are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Oh, I, how would I understand God's plan to bring Christ into the world if I didn't have that foundation? The seriousness of sin. You know, sometimes today people don't look at sin like they ought to. 
We look at sin as if it's just a little bit of a mistake, a little bit of a failure. And Paul would explain in Romans 7 and verse 7, what shall we say then? Shall we, is sin the law of sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, or you shall not covet. The law reveals to me what sin really is. And then if you look at verse 13, the last part of that, it says that sin might become exceedingly sinful. Oh, what a foundation that Old Testament provides for me. But number two, it provides a preparation. It prepares one who reads it to fully grasp the meaning of the New Testament and all that goes with it. If you were to summarize the Bible, it's under three basic statements. He is coming, he has come, and he is coming again. And without the Old Testament, it would be hard for one to realize that the people were looking for the Messiah. In John chapter 4, Jesus had gone to the Jacob's well, which was in Samaria. There was a woman there to whom he addressed himself, and she, recognizing that he was a prophet, wanted to know more about what was coming. And we learn there in chapter 4, verse 25, that the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I know there's a Christ coming. How do you know that? The Old Testament tells me that. You see, it was a preparation that had the people eager, wanting to know what was going to take place. This Old Testament reveals to us the marvelous plan which God had. Listen to Paul in Galatians, the latter part of chapter 3, the first part of chapter 4, as he's talking about the unveiling of this. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed, that the law was a tutor. If you're reading the King James, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That Old Testament was to prepare one to be able to see Jesus and who he was. If you come to chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Did you hear he said, In the fullness of time, when God's plan worked itself out, and that Old Testament brought us all the way up to that. What a great job of preparing us it does. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, he says, This salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. You see, they're looking through a long-range lens and they're saying, there's going to be the coming of Christ and there's going to be glories that are going to follow that. Were it not for the Old Testament, we wouldn't be prepared to receive all of this. 
Just consider how God used Abraham and his descendants to bring the Savior into the world. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Chapter 26, when he spoke to Jacob, he said, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You may think the word seed there, just, well, your descendants. No, that's not what he's talking about. Because when I come to Galatians 3 and verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, and he does not say seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. When God made the promise to Abraham, back there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, through his seed, all the nations will be blessed, he's saying, through Christ. What if I didn't have that Old Testament? I wouldn't be prepared to understand how Abraham and all these events fit together. The Old Testament reveals God's marvelous plan for his kingdom, which is called the church. In Luke 16, verse 16, we read, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. You go from John backwards, and everybody's saying, The kingdom's coming sometime later. When John arrives, he says, The kingdom of heaven's at hand. And he says here in Luke 16, Everybody's trying to get into it. What a job of preparation that was. Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Talking about his kingdom of the church. 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Sometimes we don't appreciate these wonderful Old Testament passages. But there he says, It shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must by needs go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. We're talking about the coming of Christ, the descendant of David. But the second, or the third great aspect of the Old Testament is its power to illustrate the Old Testament is God's picture gallery. I was listening to another man talk about the Old Testament just this past week. And he was describing the Old Testament in a figure that I think many of us may be able to grasp. He said, when we're in kindergarten, we're taught through the simplicity of pictures. And so what I did, I went and I looked at the kindergarten pictures that are in the classroom workbooks and what you will find is most of the great lessons of the Old Testament are drawn out in pictures because the little children are not able to read yet and the picture really helps them. When you look at the Old Testament God illustrated, if you will, his message through types and figures. And I don't want to mislead you here. The study of types and antitypes, figures, can be a very complex, difficult subject. But for them, it was 
a revealing of spiritual things. Let me illustrate this to you. If I look at the Old Testament, I can see Moses as a lawgiver, and I can look at Christ as a lawgiver, and I can put those two by, side by side like a picture, and I can, I can understand that. Or, for instance, Joshua. He was the rest giver. Led the children of Israel all the way into the promised land. Helped them settle it so they got rest. Of course, not a permanent rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Just like the children of Israel, after they were past war, settled the land, you and I are going to look forward to a place of rest as well. Or what about the Passover lamb? And Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the last part of verse 7 says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. What about the flood and Noah? 1 Peter 3, verse 21 says, There's also an antitype. If you're reading the original King James, there's a like figure which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, I can see those pictures, and they're illustrating. And just think about all the great characters of Hebrews 11. You think about Noah, you think about Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Gideon, Samson, and just to name the rest of them, you think about all the great lessons that we see through the pictures, the illustrations of obedience in the Old Testament. Number four, application. The Old Testament is able to translate timeless truths into a practical application for us. And when you ask the question, what is man's greatest predicament? Sin and death. Sin and death. And they are connected. They are related. They go together. Listen to Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all men sinned. All sinned. How many of us are going to die? Hebrews 9.27, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this a judgment. If the Lord doesn't return, everyone in this auditorium is going to die. Some of us sooner, some of us later. But we're all going to die. Sin entered that into the world. James 1 and verse 15 says, Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's the reality of life. What it does, as far as an application says, I need a Savior who can answer my need for this sin problem, this death problem. And only a perfect person could do that. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Let me ask you, how many of us here can say, I have done everything right? 
No, not one. None of us are that perfect. So I need a perfect Savior. Jesus the Christ. And so Paul would tell us, you go to the Scriptures, you will find in them salvation. You will find in them application. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, beginning, talking to Timothy, and from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Which Scriptures had Timothy known? You say, well, the Holy Ones. Well, none of the books of the New Testament were written at that point. So it is only the Old Testament that he's referring to, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Wise to salvation, good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Old Testament can be of great encouragement for us. Do I believe the Old Testament? Most certainly I do. Are we bound by it? Is it our law of faith and practice? No, it's not. We must remember that we serve under a better covenant established upon better promises. Hebrews 8 and verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is the mediator of a new or a better covenant which was established upon better promises. That Old Testament law could never bring me real salvation. It's only the new covenant which includes the blood of Jesus Christ. This morning, I encourage you to open your songbooks to the song of invitation. As we prepare to sing this song, it's very possible that in our audience this morning we have people who have not yet been baptized for the remission of your sins. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you are willing to repent of the things that you have done wrong, and you are willing to confess your faith in Christ, we encourage you to come forward and sit on the front seat up here. We'll assist you in being baptized for the remission of your sins. If you are a child of God and you realize, I've been walking in the ways of the world and my soul's too precious, too important to let things go any longer. If you'll also come to the front, we will pray with you and God has assured us He will forgive you. Would you come as we stand inside?